Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Talk about a grain of wheat. Holy Spirit, would you open our ears to hear? Would you open our eyes to see Jesus? He is our rabbi. He is our master. He is our savior. He is our risen Lord. We want him to teach us. We want to watch him and listen to him. We want to become like him. We want him dwelling strongly within us. And so, Lord, I pray for the grace to let Jesus shine through. And for your word to speak truth to us. Come now and call us forward. We are disciples. 2,000 years separates us. But we are walking right behind you, Jesus. With Matthew and Peter and John. We're your disciples. Disciple us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 12. We are now in the final week of Jesus' life. As until he's crucified and resurrected. This uh, that I'm reading you today takes place on Sunday. By Thursday evening, he will be in an upper room having uh, a meal, a Passover meal with his disciples. That night, he will go across the Kidron into the Mount of Ol- up to the Mount of Olives, and he will wait there for uh, Judas to, have, to bring the temple police. They don't bring Roman soldiers. I know that's what you may have seen in a play, but it isn't true. He brought the temple police from the temple, and uh, some of the priests and, and, le- and leaders, they came with, uh, to arrest him. He waited for that. Today is, is a day he will ride into Jerusalem. He will actually go into Jerusalem three times this week. Sunday, he's riding in, and they're waving palm branches. What do we call this day? Palm Sunday, yeah. He comes in, on, and it's on Palm Sunday. He go, but that day, he simply goes into the temple, and he looks around. What does he see? He sees buyers and sellers back in the courtyard, uh, selling the animals, changing the money, doing the stuff. He's, he, remember, he threw them out two years ago. Uh, he threw them out when he came in. That was the be- really the beginning of his public ministry in Jerusalem. He got there, and he took a whip cords and drove all the animals. And this... We, I think I told you, Josephus said there was as many as like 3,500 sheep or so on that, on that Temple Mount being sold. So can you imagine those things going all over? You know, he really creates a mess. And he meant, he meant to. And he drove them on. Well, he's doing it again. Um, that's, that is the, the next day. Um, by the way, on the way in, he passes a fig tree uh, on, on Monday and, and uh, the fig tree has nothing but leaves, no fruit. And uh, fig trees put out leaves and fruit, and so this is a defective fig tree. So the, the Messiah has come to inspect the fruit on his fig tree. And there is no fruit, and so he curses it. And, and he now then goes right on into the, his, the temple and looks for fruit, and there is no fruit. And then he announces, he announces not a stone, will be left upon itself. You see it? All perfectly consistent. And Tuesday, uh, he will go in, and he will enter into a debate 
with the temple, uh, with the, uh, temple leaders. And then on the way out, the disciples say, have you noticed what a beautiful temple this is? And he says, not a stone will be taken down. And he begins to explain to them the, the final days and what will happen. Lord, open the word. Grace us to hear you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're starting at chapter 12, verse 12. I will read down to verse 26. On the next day, this is to be the day after the Sabbath, so we're looking at Sunday, the large crowd who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches out of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They add the king of Israel part. It's a quote out of Psalm 118. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Would you say a donkey's colt? Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll explain to you why we did that in a minute. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, would you say glorified? Then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify to him. Remember, there was a large crowd, particularly of priests, uh, Levites and all, who were there watching Jesus when he called a man who'd been dead and buried for four days to life. The man came out of the grave I mean, that really did it. And so they're telling everybody around the temple. They, you know, they just can't stop. They're evangelizing, as it were, telling everybody about Jesus. So John said, for this reason, also the people went and met him. So there's quite a stir as this report goes out. And because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, this would be the ones that aren't following him. You see, you are not, that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. They tried to uh, slander him. They tried to stop him. They threatened him. They'd done everything they knew to do. And they're losing the battle. More and more people are following him. Verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to to worship at the feast. And then these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. I'll explain that in the Bible study. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Let's read verse 24 out loud together. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And I'll read two more. He who loses his life, uh, loves his life, loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The greatest decision you and I will ever make is to repent and receive by faith the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? That's the greatest decision. To repent, turning away from our rebellion, turning away from our independence, 
uh, turning away from our, our, uh, our, just our, our, our violence against the Lord and following him and then believing, embracing the cross, putting our faith in Christ Jesus. That decision changes where we will spend eternity. But there is another decision each person must make which determines the outcome of our life. It is one of those decisions where to not make a decision is to make a decision. If we make the right choice, our life will be fruitful, meaning it will be full of people who are in one way or another being drawn closer to Jesus. If we make the wrong choice, we will essentially live alone, focused on ourselves. Jesus compares this decision to a grain of wheat which must be planted in the earth in order to produce more wheat. He says, now would you read this? This is my translation of it. Unless the grain of wheat which falls into the earth dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Do you notice that's very literal? Unless the grain of wheat which falls into the earth dies. It's almost as if the grain could go into the earth but not die. You know, so he says, the grain of the earth, it, when it dies. And he's not talking about self-neglect or having a sour attitude toward the good things this world provides when he adds, let's read this, the one who loves his own soul, that's the natural life, loses it. And the one who hates his life in this world will save, that means guard or preserve, it unto eternal life. I just need to explain for a minute. The Bible teaches that you and I are made up of three parts, body, soul, and spirit, but it's really muddled in the way it's usually taught. The body, you, you see it right in the moment of creation, where, where you've got Adam made out of clay. You've got a clay model, apparently, of Adam. And then it says that the Lord breathed into his nostrils what? The breath of life. What you'll often have people mistakenly say is God breathed spirit into Adam. He did not breathe spirit into Adam. He breathed the breath of life into Adam. And it says Adam became a living nephesh, a living soul. That's the word that's used here. Only the, the Greek word is suke. So, so what you have is you have a body. You have a, an animated biological life in you which when you die, it ceases. You don't cease. Why? Because there's a third element. You are also, you are actually essentially spirit. What is spirit? God made us in his image. Yeah, that's where the spirit comes in. God created you essentially a spirit. He didn't blow it into you a bit of his. He made you spirit. You follow that? You have a physical body. You have biological life. And you are essentially spirit. You are a, uh, that's where the, 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 the mind, the will, and the emotions, those are you. See, that's the deal. Because you're spirit, spirit can't cease to exist. Once you're conceived, you are existing forever. Spirit doesn't, doesn't cease. You know, we, we, it does, you have these people teach, uh, you know, annihilation stuff. Like when you die, you, you, know, you go up like smoke. Nonsense. You can't do that to spirit. Spirit doesn't cease, and your spirit, intellect, will, and emotions. And so preparing for eternity, being right with God is a huge deal because you want to be with him in the joy of his presence forever. That's, that's the whole thing. Most humans are born with the instinct to care for themselves. 
God places that desire to stay alive in us, and it's healthy and necessary. When someone begins to neglect those needs, people recognize it as a warning signal that something is wrong. Jesus lived a rugged life, but not a life of self-neglect or withdrawal from others. When he says, unless you hate your life in this world, he's not saying, I hate sunshine, and I hate bluebirds, and, and, I, and I hate Cheerios, and I, I just hate everything good around me. Blah, blah. That's, just, that's just being male. No, I mean, I don't mean that, sort of. That's grumpy. That's not what he means by hating. He's, he's giving a contrast. He's saying, you make choices. Choices to turn to that which is spiritual and real, and choices not to, to, to make, you know, invest yourself in the things of the world. So it's as though you hated them. You are making those kinds of choices. That's what he's driving at, because I'll tell you, anyone who is grumpy, children and mothers, and they're, they're, they're thronging him. You, you know what kind of people you follow? People with humor, people with love, people with the joy of, uh, in him. He was, he was full of joy and full of life. Children clamored to him. The disciples are going, get away, kids away. You don't, you, don't, you don't do that when they're grumpy and life-hating. So I'm just drawing it out. He's not talking about that kind of thing. For Jesus himself to choose to be a grain of wheat that falls into the earth and dies meant that he chose to die on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. But Jesus was unique. He alone is the eternal Son of God who came from heaven to rescue us by his physical death and resurrection. You and I aren't called to die like that. Our physical death would have no power to atone the sins of others. We are simply not good enough and our death is not needed because his death was more than sufficient to pay for the sins of every human who has ever, ever has or will live. You will hear people, and this is a tendency, I think it's a human instinct. You'll have somebody who's maybe uh, sick and they're dying of a disease. And you, you, you will hear people say this, God, if somebody has to die, let it be me. As though God's going, I'm going to kill somebody, so who's it going to be? <laughs> a or B, but I'm, somebody's going down. But I'm, I'm making fun of it, but it's a very painful moment when those kinds of things are said, and I'm not making light of that pain. But do you hear what's going on? It's as if you've got to sort of get God to take its focus off that poor person and put it on you, and you're willing to take the brunt of it. Your death, your sickness, your whatever it is, has no atoning power at all. If you get sick, now you've got two people sick. That's the only thing that's going to happen. Do you follow? It's, there's no atoning power. Jesus Christ is uniquely the divine Son of God of worth beyond any measure who became a man so he could die for us. And in that death is an explosive power that covers all of humanity from the, very, from the first human to the last human. Everyone has been died for. He has paid for their sins. He has borne their sorrows. And he has carried their sickness. By his stripes, we are healed. You understand? So that, that impulse that says, oh God, somehow, give it to me, or that kind of thing, that's very wrong-headed. It's, it's wrong. 
Yes, serving him can lead us into danger. And many have suffered and died for their faith. But that suffering is a byproduct of their obedience, not a goal that God desires for them. It was the price they had to pay, not the prize. God does not desire or rejoice when he has martyrs, when people suffer or die like that. He hates death. It is a byproduct of their obedience. He, he loves them. He's deeply aware of what the price they've paid for him. But it is not something he wants for us. He grieves over that. Our last enemy is what? Death. Death is not our friend. Death is a horrible thing that got led into the plan of God because he gave us freedom and we chose to rebel. This is not his plan. Death was not in the original plan A. Death is a plan B byproduct that came along because of our sin. Yet he makes it clear that we too must become like a grain of wheat that falls into the earth and dies. So what type of death is he talking about? If it's not physical death and it's not being grumpy at the world around us, then what is it? Let's try to answer that question today because the decision we make will determine whether or not we produce fruit for God. It's important to me that we, we see what's just happened. By arranging to ride into the city that day on a young donkey, Jesus was making a statement of his own. He was directing the crowd's attention away from Psalm 118 to another passage. The crowd wanted him to rise up as a warrior, but the appointed time for the final battle would, that would destroy the armies surrounding Jerusalem had not yet arrived. Now, I didn't read you what I explained before that, but let me tell you this. Psalm 118 is a psalm that talks about Messiah coming and destroying the nations, the enemy nations that surround Israel. And so, it, in fact, it is, it, it's just said, you know, you'll rise up and you'll, you'll, you'll destroy the, 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 these nations. And by the way, it, just a few verses earlier, it says, and the, but the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, which is a powerful uh, discussion of, of Jesus. And then it says, you know, Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's talking about the Messianic king. He's come. He's going to deliver us. He's going to set us free from these Gentile nations. Blessed is he. So as the word goes through the temple, Jesus is coming. People pour out. Now, the, the east side of the temple is right on the edge of the Kidron Valley, and right across the Kidron Valley is the Mount of Olives. So they're pouring out either the Sheep Gate on the north or the, or the East Gate. They're pouring out the gate, and they're going across the valley and up the, the road that leads diagonally across the Mount of Olives. When we go to Israel, we start at the top, and there's, the road itself isn't there. Probably chunks of it are, and we just work our way right on down the, the side of that hill. Still, so they're pouring up the hill, and by the way, I always pictured them that they sort of lined the side of the road. And then as Jesus went by, they're waving palm branches, you know, and he, he was waving at them from the donkey. Do, do you picture it like that? It's kind of a parade. Well, I, this is the problem is, you know, when you actually read the Bible, it says different things. And, and what it says is that they came up the road, and when they met him, part of them went to the front in front of him, and part went behind and they then proceeded with him. So it's not a parade. I mean, it's not a people lining the streets watching. They join him as he returns into Jerusalem. 
And the ones in the front, uh, and maybe the ones in the back too, but uh, are taking their coats off, and they're laying them in the, on the road, and they also br- have brought palm branches, um, which is, by the way, a symbol of, of, of freedom. And they're laying those in the road, saying, Messianic king, come and take your throne on Zion. You know, Psalm 2 says, uh, the Lord will say, I have set my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So here comes the messianic king. That's what they're saying. This is set us free, come and set up the kingdom. And Jesus chooses the foal of a donkey. Let's see. He says he will be, uh, in Zechariah 9, 9 and 10, the prophet describes the day when Jerusalem will welcome a humble king, not a violent one. He says he will be just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. Notice this, even the foal of a donkey. Zechariah says that this king will bring peace, not a chariot. He specifically says that. A war, or a war horse or a bow. He says this king will destroy the chariot, the war horse. And the bow. But he will conquer from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. By doing this, he will speak peace. Say, speak peace. Do you see what's going on here? This is an incredible prophetic passage saying he will be a peaceful Lord who saves and speaks rather than destroys people. In other words, it will be by spiritual conversion not violence, that he will extend God's rulership from sea to sea and from the river Euphrates to the ends of the earth. In effect, the crowd was clamoring for him to be a warrior. And by riding in on the donkey, Jesus replied, no, I have a ministry of salvation that I must accomplish first. Friday, John admits that at the time, none of the disciples apparently understood why Jesus insisted on riding into the city on a donkey. Apparently, they didn't ask, he didn't explain, and not one of them recognized the symbolism from Zechariah. Riding on a donkey would have been a very familiar sight, so John says they didn't see its meaning until after Jesus was glorified. In other words, only after Jesus had been resurrected and ascended into heaven did someone finally realize that the young donkey was a prophetic symbol, not a mode of transportation. John doesn't say how that revelation arrived, but it may have come while reading Zechariah 9.9. The prophet specifically says that the Messiah will ride on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And someone must have remembered that Jesus instructed them to bring not only a donkey, but a donkey with its colt, and that he'd actually ridden on the colt. You remember the passage? Jesus says, now go into the city, go into the city ahead of us, and you will see there a donkey tied with its colt. He says untie it and bring it to me. He's made arrangements, I think. I don't think this is just sort of prophetic. I know there's a donkey there. I, I think this is he's actually made arrangements. But he knows what they're going to do, and he's making a statement. And he says, bring them to me. And he says, if the owner questions you, say the Lord has need of them. So there they are. There's the, and they bring the two animals, a mother with its colt. And it says they put their garments on the colt. Now, it's not a little tiny spindly thing. It's obviously big enough to, to hold a, a, a person. They put the blankets or the, the robes on the colt, and he sat and rode on the colt, not the mother donkey. Why? Zachariah said he would. I mean, this is just pure prophetic symbolism that he's, that he's doing. Once that connection was made, 
Jesus' message would have opened up to them. But if his own disciples hadn't seen the symbolism as he rode down the Mount of Olives, we can assume that few, if any, in the crowd understood either. Jesus may have left the event unexplained because he was using it like a parable. Those who longed to understand would reflect on it later and see its spiritual meaning. By mentioning that the disciples didn't understand until after Jesus was glorified, Jesus, John may be telling us more than how long it took before they saw the truth. He may be telling us why they finally saw it. It is evident from his writings that John was very aware that one of the main ministries of the Holy Spirit is to teach people about Jesus. He records Jesus saying, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I said to you. The disciples did not receive this new relationship to the Holy Spirit until 10 days after Jesus ascended into heaven. Before departing, Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem for what he described as a baptism with the Holy Spirit. That baptism arrived for the disciples on the day of Pentecost. And afterward, they proclaimed Christ with new clarity, boldness, and quoted freely from the Messianic passages in the Old Testament. So John says, we didn't see it until after he was glorified and poured out the Holy Spirit on us. And then the, the word exploded. Then we began to open the Bible and see him all through the Bible. And we came to that passage and went, what were we thinking? We put him on a colt for heaven's sakes. Now we know what he was saying. He is that Messiah who's just and endowed with salvation. The hour has come. Jesus actually made three different visits to the temple during that final week that led up to the cross. The first one, which we read about, took place on Sunday. On that day, he triumphantly rode into the city, went into the temple, looked around, and then returned to Bethany. Apparently, while he was in the temple, a group of Greek-speaking people came up to Philip, who likely spoke Greek, and asked him to introduce them to Jesus. That request, for some reason, must have been awkward because Philip went to Andrew to discuss what to do. They decided to go together and present it to Jesus. Let me just stop. Why would they go to Philip? Philip is from, John mentions it, from Bethsaida. And Bethsaida happens to be about two to three miles from, from an area called the Decapolis, which was a Greek-speaking area of ten nations, a league of ten nations. So Philip, and Philip's name, if you notice, is Greek. Philip of Macedonia was the father of Alexander the Great. I mean, it is really Greek. And so Philip's named a Greek name, so his family is apparently pretty conversant. And then he goes to Andrew... And Andrew's also, they're from the same town, Andrew's also a Greek name. So I'll bet the Greeks came up and said, does anybody speak Greek? And um, yeah, and then they go to Philip and say, can we talk to him? Can we meet Jesus? And here's what's going on. The grief, the, the emotional agony uh, of the cross is hitting Jesus right now. It's, he's already starting. He will say, my hours come, and he, and he will say, and my soul trembles. That's what the Greek is. My soul is trembling. He is also already feeling the anxiety of what's ahead of him. You know, any of us who've dealt with anxiety, have you dealt with anxiety? Isn't it horrible? I mean, you'd rather have a physical illness, really, than the, the anxiety. The anxiety is this horrible. Well, he's, and, he's and, and we see him in Gethsemane. Uh, at that point, literally sweating, just profusely, on the ground, just prostrate, uh, realizing what's ahead of him. 
He is embracing it. He's not running from it. He's choosing it. He's surrendering to it. An angel will come in Gethsemane and comfort him and help him. But it's already begun. John's letting us know that here on Sunday, he's already deeply aware of the horror that's ahead of him. And so they come and they say, these Greeks want to talk to you. And he says, not, not anymore. I'm done with that kind of ministry. I have, I've got to focus now. We're going to prepare. We're preparing for the cross. I can't now. He responded by saying that his time of ministering to people the way he had been doing had ended. He said this, his hour of suffering had already begun and he was now focused on the cross. But even then, he said all these things with a crowd standing nearby and listening. When a grain of wheat falls into the earth, it dies in the sense that it ceases to be a single seed. But it doesn't cease to exist. It actually explodes with life. It germinates and a whole new function comes forth from within it. A plant emerges which, will, which can produce 30, 60, and even 100 times as many seeds than the single grain that went into the soil. By giving up its right to preserve itself, it re reproduces itself. I mean, it, it dies in that it changes, but it doesn't cease to exist. It doesn't disintegrate. Do you, do you know that when a seed germinates, its nutritional value explodes instantly upon germination 1,000 times? That's why when you have sprouted grains, I'm not, this is not a commercial, but when you have, when you have sprouted grains, the minute that grain sprouts, its nutritional value explodes 1,000 times. It's full of life. So he says if it goes into the soil, he's not saying go in and rot. He's saying if it goes into the soil, it loses its, its, solid, its, its, its solo life. It opens up and gives birth to a plant. Now a grain of wheat has no choice in the matter. A farmer takes that seed and plunges it into a field, but we do. Jesus makes that clear when he says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. He invites us to follow him as he serves others. He doesn't seize us and plunge us into the ground. He himself freely gave his life to save us, and he calls us to follow his example. Not with a martyr's death, though that could happen, but by choosing to die to self, which means putting aside our own ambitions, safety, comfort, and goals, and living instead for the salvation and healing of others. Now, I, I see three stages in this, and that's what I'm going to show you. Choosing it, meaning it, and living it. Let's start with choosing it. Jesus didn't say that he was the only one who had to die in order to bear fruit. He said that everyone who chose to follow him must do the same. What does he mean? I think the death you and I have to die is simply this. We must decide to live for others rather than for ourselves. Would you, would you say that? We must decide to live for others rather than for ourselves. When we make that choice, we focus outward rather than inward. Success becomes what, what happens to someone else rather than what happens to us. We choose to serve rather than be served, to love rather than be loved, to give rather than to get. It's a reorientation of, of, your, of, your, of your heart, of your interest, of your passion. You cease to say, now, how do I 
get promoted? How do I get safe? How do I get comfortable? And you begin to say, God, how can I touch others? It's, it's a reorientation of that eye. When I look back on my own life, I realize that this choice was a process, not a single event. It's something I had to grow into. In fact, I think it's something I'm still growing into. I started out by praying that I would have such a heart, but not really understanding what I was saying. I would sing songs which declared that I had selflessly given everything to God. The words sounded beautiful, and I wanted to mean them. But it was all just a distant concept, an ideal that I was choosing but had, not, had yet to experience. That is not false. Many, I think this is where many of us start. You know, the first thing is you say, oh, God, I give you everything. Now, I haven't a clue that he will actually take it. <laughs> I, but it sounds wonderful, and I think he likes to hear this stuff. And so I say it to him, and I mean it. Sort of. I mean, I just don't understand what I'm saying. And I sing, I surrender all. I surrender all. And, and I'm thinking, when is that going to get over with so I can get home and watch the football game? You know, I surrender all. It's very shallow. But it's where we start. And he does not despise it. I think the process begins in the choosing. I am voting for it. I am Choosing it. I am embracing the idea. I don't really understand what I'm embracing, but I'm starting. And I, and I want to mean it. Then came the real life choices. And the sense that God was leading me to go one way, while everything inside me wanted to go another. I had to choose whether or not to take a selfless path, rather than pursue things that made more money, or impressed others. It seemed that at every Y in the road, God would require me to go in a direction I didn't want to go. He pointed toward paths that were too hard, or too lowly, or too whatever. And to be honest, I went through some seasons of real sorrow as my dreams of grandeur died. I mean, let me just stop. It, was a, it, it just was a litany of choices. You know, you say, God, I surrender, I want to follow you. And then, he, then, then you come to these whys in the road and there's these choices. And he says, take that path. You go, no, no, you don't understand. I, I, I really want to go here. I mean, for me, I, I, wanted, I wanted to serve him, okay? But I'd like to serve him on my terms. And I, I thought, how about being a medical missionary? Which I think is still a wonderful thing to be, by the way. But at least I would, I would, I would get, go to medical school. Uh, and I was pre-medicine through college. I will go to medical school, and people will respect me even though I'm working for Jesus. I mean, <laughs> just telling you. And uh, I'll be, so I'll be working for Jesus, but I'm still respectable. And then even applying and everything else. And then the Lord says, no, I want you to go to ministry. Ministry, Lord? That's way down the pole. And I, I had a really hard time. And so I said, well, at least if I'm going to be a minister, let's be a respectable minister. So I started with the Lutherans. And um, <laughs> I did. But they were too respectable. And, and then so I moved down another notch, and I, I went to Presbyterians and actually became a Presbyterian pastor for a while. And uh, wonderful people, by the way, both places. I am not slandering them in the slightest. I love both groups to, still to this day. Um, 
And I became a Presbyterian. And then the Lord says to me, no, I need, you to, I need you to run the way I've made you to run. I need you to be a Pentecostal. I said, Lord, nobody respects the Pentecostals. <laughs> and, they, and they don't. <laughs> you know, when I, when I left the Presbytery, I had to stand in front of the San Diego Presbytery and, and explain to them. And the Lord had told me, you, you thank them for every good thing they've done. And I did, and I thanked them, and I stood there. And afterwards, an old pastor came up to me, and he says, young man, I, I understand why you might leave, because there was quite a bit of liberalism struggling in that movement. And he says, but Foursquare, why on earth Foursquare? And I um, don't know, I just kind of think maybe God wants me there. You know, so it's really like, and so off we go, and, and it's got to be Foursquare, and then on and on. Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, that's my little journey, and it's, it, there was more. But you come to these whys in the road between prestige or money or comfort or safety, and then you have the, 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 the other path, and God says, well, this is the one I want you to take. And you go, oh, for heaven's sakes, my, my in-laws, my, my, my uncle's family, my, my oh, nobody's going to like this. <laughs> no, and they didn't. Um, <laughs> I, I, no, I'm getting too personal here. Um, but just to say that he didn't. Now, with the passage of time, that healed. Uh, I think he has that kind of wise in the road for you, too. That's why I'm sharing this. And what I'm saying, even in mine, is obviously my issue is pride. And so God had to just take one humbling step after another. He's not trying to hurt me. path is there. Now, let me say, I, I've been doing this for a long time, and I'll tell you some story here about it, but, but am I sorry I followed his path now? Do I wish I could have followed my path instead of his? No, no. Over the years, I've learned who I am, and I've learned how he uses me, and I wouldn't trade it for a million dollars. Do you understand? I wouldn't trade it for anything, because he was right. But I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And I, it was very painful for me. Let's, let me show you the next, the next stage there. I wish I could say I gladly chose God's way, but I was often a reluctant disciple who did what I was asked to do but felt very sorry for myself at the time. Becoming a leader. I recently heard a leader in the business world say this, leaders are made, not born. Now that is exactly the opposite of what I thought. I had realized that leadership arose out of an attitude in the heart, so I thought leaders were born, not made. But then she said this, a leader is someone who chooses to make a positive difference. Would you say that? A leader is someone who chooses to make a positive difference. Leadership has nothing to do with position or title. That was said by Carly Fiorina. Do you know that name? She ran for president. Uh, one point, she was the chairman of Hewlett-Packard, the largest uh, company of its kind in the world. Um, she said during her years, she went from $44 billion a year to $80 billion a year, and they were putting out 11 patents a day. She, she said in that little uh, cartridge for the printer, 100, 100 patents. Isn't that amazing? No wonder it's expensive. Uh, yeah. Um, by the way, she freely confessed Christ in the process. But here's what she said. She said, leaders are someone who choose uh, to make a positive difference. 
I realized all along there's something inside a person that is leadership. It's not, it's not your looks. It's not your intellect. It's not any of those things. But there's a passion in some people. They're moving somewhere. They're on their way. And we sense that. And we, can, we either decide, oh, I want to go with you or do I not want to go with you? But you're going somewhere. You're not standing there. You're not l- waiting around for somebody else to leave. You're going somewhere. And it just creates a, a vacuum almost. And we get in behind you and we follow. And I saw that, and I thought, well, God just must instill that in certain people. Certain people got that passion, and others of us just stand around waiting for them. And, but not so. And I think she's right. I stand corrected. It's a choice. It's a choice. And it's the simple choice. Will I make a positive difference? Will, will I be part of the solution or part of the problem? Will I roll up my sleeves and make a difference instantly? The inside of you changes, and your entire life orientation changes. That choice to make a positive difference is what turns a bystander into a leader. It's the commitment to live for something beyond oneself, something bigger, something better. At its root, it's an attitude about who I am and why I'm here. Even the business world realizes that the the power of that choice But when a person changes their attitude about who they are and why they're here and decides to live in such a way that their life will bring the love and truth of Jesus to others, the results are much more than financial. They are eternal. Meaning it. Choosing it, meaning it. At the same point along the way, at some point along the way, we're confronted by the reality that if we keep following Jesus, it will be too late to turn back we will be hopelessly committed to a life of service. And at least in me, there was a fierce impulse to hold on to my options to a safer, more comfortable life. I was willing to live selflessly for a while, but I sensed I had come to a point of no return. That that was when I really struggled with the question of whether or not to totally let go and follow wherever he led. I now had walked with him long enough to know, what he meant when he, to, to know what he meant when he said a grain of wheat must fall into the earth and die. I knew how serious those words were. I had already tasted some of that death. And it took a deep encounter with God for me to choose it again and mean it. I was 43 years old. <laughs> so if any of you think you're slow... Uh, I came to the Lord at 12. I mean, I really came to the Lord at 12. In the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I met him. And I did love him. And I did say, I want to serve you, and I want to live for you. And I did make choices. I did grumbling, but I followed. I made the choices. I did what he asked me to do. But somewhere around 43, I realized, okay, I'm getting so old. There's no going back. I'm stuck. I mean, I, it's too late to go to medical school. I can't do, I can't do anything. I, oy vey, I'm stuck. Oh, God, what have I done? I realized that I ha- the, the only way this was going to work, because I had spent so much depression, so much anxiety, so much suffering over the choices I was making and the process I was in. I did it. God blessed it. And I was miserable. It came to a head in Arizona when we were planning a, a church there. Mary and I just uh, went, went there to Phoenix, Arizona. I didn't know a soul in the state. I knew Barry Goldwater had been the senator at some point. I mean, I knew nothing. 
Um, one couple moved over, two that we knew, and they helped us. Um, but I'm starting in this thing, and I, and, and God was with us, but I was miserable. We were in a, in a, in a band room of a junior high school, and uh, rebuilding this old, terribly beat-up church that, building that the denomination had owned. Um, and I just felt like I'd come to a place where all my dreams of somehow achieving something you know, meaningful were dead. I was stuck in this, in this wrong spot, in this miserable spot. And I got real depressed. And I would go into the bedroom, and we'd close the door, and I'd close the blinds, and... And Mary would just tell the kids, don't go in. You know, he's, daddy's sleeping. And daddy was in there in the full fetal position, just, oh, God. And I'm just hurting so bad I can hardly stand it. I mean, it's it not just miserable inside. And it came to, uh, let me tell you one thing that had happened that week before. I'd gone to a pastor's gathering. And I was standing in line and right, right you know, holding my plate for the buffet. And a, a, a gal, I can't remember if she was ahead of me or behind me, but we were talking, and she and her husband were, were planning a church somewhere. And she said this. She said, you know, Steve, I've come to the place where, for me, success is just touching somebody for Jesus. And I thought to myself, I'm just confessing to you, I thought to myself, you're just trying to cope with poor attendance. That's a hideous attitude. I just expo- I'm just telling you... I know. But it showed my problem. And even as I thought it, I thought, what a rotten heart you have. She's right. And you don't feel that way. You're trying to prove yourself. So I'm lying on the bed, and God came, spoke to me in his mercy. Mary's outside praying in tongues. And the Lord spoke to me. And he said to me, son, you don't want to live anymore, do you? And I said, no, sir, I don't. Now, understand, I was not suicidal. Suicidals for young people, in, I mean, for early stages of depression, you, go, you grow out of it for the most part, if you don't hurt yourself. You realize, i got to live. I can't do this. And so you just resolve to sort of endure this miserable life till it's finally over. Hallelujah. <laughs> I'm just saying so I'm on them. He says, you don't enjoy living, do you? And I said, no, sir, I don't. He says, you know, you've still got a lot of life left. It's a pity to waste it. He said, and then he said, like, there's another 50,000 miles on this vehicle. You don't need to trade it in now. <laughs> and he said, since you're not enjoying living for yourself, why don't you give me what's left, and I'll use it any way I want. Now, I'm planning a church. I mean, my wife and family, we all are. I'm serving Jesus. I'm preaching the word every weekend. I'm praying for people. And what did he see in my heart? You're still doing it for you. You're doing it for you. He didn't say I didn't love him. He he called me son. we, We love each other. But the heart hadn't let go. And he knew it. And he said, since you're not enjoying living for yourself, why don't you give me what's left? And he said, I'll make you like a coin in my pocket. And I'll spend you any way I want. Now listen, I, this is not something, this is the, 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 there's something even shameful in this. I came to the point where I hurt so bad and I had hurt so long, I didn't care anymore. That's what it took to get Steve Shell to mean it. I had to hurt so bad, so long, that I didn't care. 
and I, it was like hanging them on a bar, you know, above, above 50 feet above the ground. And somebody says, let go, I'll catch you. Going, oh, no, you know, and then you're too tired, you can't hold on anymore, and you finally let go. And the thing that I could tell happened, he said, why don't you give me what's left? And I said, all right, I will. In fact, I, I had the picture in my mind of, of, the, of the, that little mouse in Fantasia, which had the little hat on, remember, sweeping the water? And the, and the phrase came to mind, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. And I thought to myself, I'm going to just be a doorkeeper in the house of God, and I'm all right with that. I'm all right with that. And I meant it. I meant it. And I let go, and one blink of the eye, eyelid, I was depressed. The next blink of the eyelid, I was perfectly normal. And I haven't had that kind of savage depression since, by the way. I deal with anxiety on and off. That'll come up when I get too much stuff on my plate. I, I can get anxious. But I don't have that kind of savage depression. It lifted when I was able to mean it. Oh, let me just say, this is kind of fun, and I, I'm probably wearing you out. I'll, I'll move fast on the rest of it, promise. <laughs> I, I do, I will. I'll move fast. I said, Lord, I'll stay here, and I'll be a happy camper, and I meant it. So I just put my heart into that church and just loved those people and just had a great time. I was feeling great, and I get a phone call five months later. Five months later, I get a phone call from the supervisor of the Northwest District, and he says, uh, Steve, would you consider a church? I said, absolutely not. I said, God's called me here, as far as I can tell, and we're here for the duration. And we're happy about it. Hallelujah. And he says, and this is what did it. He said, Steve, five months ago, right when this was happening, he says, God put you on my heart, and I haven't been able to get you off, and I've been praying about you ever since. Would you at least pray? He says, I won't even tell you where the church is. Just pray, God's saying. And I said, all right, I'll pray three days. And I said, if he didn't tell me and Mary, it's all off. I'm not interested at all. But I will pray since you ask. And all right, I trusted the guy. So I said, all right, I'll pray. I, the Lord, I spoke, sought, sought the Lord, and he says, go, and I'll be with you. Mary sought the Lord and said, you must go. <laughs> and we came. And then they told us where it was. It was a little church in Federal Way. You know? <laughs> all right. It's living it. It's not one choice, it's many. As we read the Gospels, we watch Jesus himself choosing the cross numerous times over those years. And as our years pass, we discover new levels of meaning, new depths of service, new areas within our own heart that we didn't realize were there. And by now, we fully understand what Jesus' call is that is no joke. It really is a dying to things we care about. We had given up things we we we, we could never get back. The distance between us and those who didn't choose this path gets wider and wider. I mean, you choose a selfless path and others are, 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 are just working for themselves and they're getting more and more comfortable and you aren't in that way. In tired, lonely moments, we may be assaulted with feelings of envy. But as time passes, something else happens as well. The seed begins to reproduce. The selfless path has drawn more and more people into our lives. If we lack riches or prestige, we are rich in people, people we love and people who love us. And we also discover that his promise to never leave us and be with us always becomes very real. 
We survive on his presence. We regularly run into his arms to find the comfort and strength to go on. And we do go on because God is with us. He is an everyday fact, not a distant theology. We talk to him. We don't debate his existence. And somewhere along the selfless path, there comes a deep awareness that we wouldn't turn back even if we could. We're aware that our life has really made a difference. See, God's calling you not to nothing, not to destruction. He's calling you to true eternal meaning, to dignity, to purpose, things that matter and will matter a billion years from now. He's lifting you up out of stuff into eternal souls. That's the deal. The the other side of the cross, Jesus didn't say the hour has come for the Son of Man to be crucified. He said the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. To be glorified means means to be made glorious. Waiting on the other side of the cross was his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. He focused his attention on the prize, not the price. He set his gaze on salvation, not sacrifice. The cross was simply the doorway through which he must pass in order to enter into his glory. In order to become the firstborn among many brethren. In order to present the father with billions of children who love him and will rejoice in his presence forever. He was not unaware of the horrible realities he was about to endure. As he stood in the temple courtyard that day, he had already begun to experience mental torment. He said, now my soul has become troubled. The word means shaken. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Yet he deliberately set his mind on the reward that his suffering would bring. We must do the same. A selfless life is very costly. It involves daily choices to live for God and others. But if we'll fix our gaze on the other side of the cross, all we will see is glory. Would you stand with me? Except a seed fall into the earth and dies, it will remain alone. But if it dies, it will produce much fruit. It isn't rejecting life. It isn't hoping to be a martyr. It isn't somehow ceasing to be you or going into some kind of suspended state. He didn't want that at all. That's, that's not what he means. He means when you and I reorient the heart and begin to live not for ourselves, but for others. By the way, I didn't say it, but one of the things you'll also discover in this life is though you didn't pursue money, you didn't pursue your own comforts, your heavenly Father knows what you need, and you will find a level of miraculous support and care that is simply wonderful. He doesn't forsake you. You don't end up Miserable, and I, I, I just tell story after story of people, your children are educated, You're, everything you needed, everything you needed was provided abundantly and wonderfully. He says, if you will follow me, I'll clothe you like the lilies of the field, and I'll feed you like the birds of the air. Set your mind first on the kingdom of God, and these things will be added to you. That's another part of this whole thing. The man or woman who says, God, I'm living for you, what do you want me to do? 
He, he takes full responsibility for your care and provides for you. And he, I just can testify, and so can hundreds of people, that this works. It's real. It's the way we live. It's a miracle life, isn't it? <laughs> Heavenly Father, as we listen to your beautiful Son, Call us to become like him, to follow him, that where he is, we will be also. To live, not for ourselves, but to live that others may know you, that others may have eternal life. To live for that which really matters, to lay up a treasure in heaven, not here on earth. Oh God, guide us and strengthen us. Some of us today, we choose it. We, sin, we, we don't fully understand, but we want to. And we want to obey. So we choose today and say, yes, Lord, I will take that path. Some of us today have come a long ways now and we've lived it a while. And, oh, Lord, the weight of it and the reality of it has come deep. And we, today we mean it. Today we let go and say, God, whatever, whatever I've held on to that tries to provide a way of escape, an exit ramp, as it were, and always keep my options open. I let those go. I let those go. And Lord, some of us today are living it. We are living this life. And we are already enjoying the fruit of it and seeing people. And we just thank you that your ways are right and our ways are not. That you who love us and know all things are guiding our life. We worship you and we honor you. That we might be a seed that doesn't abide alone but brings much fruit. We choose that again today in Jesus' precious name. If you agree with me, would you say amen? Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.